<clears throat> Welcome to our critical issues uh, confronting China. This will be our last session before the holidays. We'll resume uh, late in January. And we're very fortunate to have with us uh, Jim Millward, who on the Xinjiang question has distinguished himself uh, both as a historian who's been working on the issues for a long time uh, with a lot of general background in Qing history, a uh, great linguist uh, who not only uh, does uh, work in Chinese, but also in Japanese, reads Russian and Spanish, uh, and uh, keeps up with uh, all those issues. He, after he was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard in East Asian languages, he went on to Stanford where he for many years. Uh, he worked on uh, Qing history, and he's been working on Xin uh, for a long time. Uh, some people have said that uh, his uh, Eurasian crossroads is still uh, the era. He's written a more recent book on uh, the Silk Road uh, <clears throat> and a number of other uh, important books in between. Uh, he's uh, often now quoted in uh, issues related to Xinjiang because he's kept up with the issue, very passionate in defending uh, Uyghur uh, intellectuals. And uh, so uh, we're very fortunate that considering how important the, the issue is, how much uh, he's in demand, and how much the uh, uh, Uyghur issue is on the front burner, uh, why we're the Uyghur issue has been a very sensitive one for a long time. Uh, in 2004, a group of historians uh, working in Xinjiang combined to write a book uh, edited by Frederick Starr. And already all the people who had been working on that, and some very distinguished uh, scholars, uh, uh, including uh, John Lippmann and Gardner, uh, many others uh, have all had trouble getting into Xinjiang ever since that time. So amidst all this great difficulty, uh, Jim has kept up his scholarship, kept up his informing, and so we're very pleased that he took the time to be with us. Jim, it's yours. Thank um, you very if much. I could just, excuse me, Professor Milmer, if I could just jump in real quick. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Questions. Yeah. Um, it did, because I assume people will have plenty of questions. Um, the way to do it is to enter them in the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Um, if you want to identify yourself, please um, put your name and your institution so we know, know where you're coming from. And then if you don't, there's an anonymous question function. Uh, all right, take it away. Well, thank you very much, Ezra. And thanks to the Fairbanks Center for having me. I know uh, Ezra was trying to getting to come speak about Xinjiang um, at the center for many years now. And I, um, I always said no, because I didn't have anything new to say. I'd sort of written my book and there were other people coming along. Unfortunately, now there's just so much to talk about um, for kind of the wrong reasons um, that um, I, you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't say no. So uh, thank you, thank you. Um, for whatever reasons, it's, it is uh, nice to be able to, uh, I guess I can say return to Harvard and to speak about this. Um, and then what I'll try to do today is to put some historical perspective and kind of try and explain from a longer point of view uh, what's going on now and why I think it's it's going on now and what the what the problems are. So I'm gonna I have a PowerPoint, so I'm gonna share my screen. 
and pull that up. All right, so I, that's visible, right again, Ezra? Yes, it's visible. Okay, all right. So <clears throat> um, I, I won't spend a lot of time on sort of going over what's been happening there in Xinjiang since the last uh, you know, four or five years, or yeah, I guess since 2016, 2017 or so. I think everyone here are, is well aware. Um, you can kind of break it down into the, the surveillance regime, into the arrests and internments. Uh, and I say arrests and internments because a lot of the media attention has been on these camps, which are have been the system of camps, which has been, been built out since 2017. But along with that, and, and very much part of the same system, have been people put into prisons at a unprecedented rate, including a lot of intellectuals and so on. Um, the birth suppression uh, campaign via the, the family planning policies but which are aggressively enacted and pursued in Xinjiang while they're actually being uh, retreated from in many ways uh, in Han regions of the PRC. Uh, recently, most in the news has been the issue of, of forced labor or non-voluntary uh, labor in factories uh, involving sending of people from Southern and other parts of Xinjiang to factories are all around Xinjiang and even in Eastern China. Uh, in many ways, you know, family separations, both because of internments and arrests, because of sending people to remote factories to work, uh, because of the uh, sort of boarding school uh, system, all really amounts to an attack on the family. And much more broadly, an ongoing assault on Uyghur culture, cultural patrimony, the Uyghur language, uh, and so on. So you know, all of these things really come together to a situation which um, is increasingly being talked about as, as genocide or ethnocide or cultural genocide, certainly crimes against humanity, and certainly things that we you know, really wish we weren't talking about in regard to the People's Republic of China uh, in the year 2020. Um, so this paragraph here kind of pulls together uh, what I'm trying to say in, the, in, this, in this talk. Um, we're looking at something right now that really is Unprecedented, unprecedented, but not unrelated to the trajectories of both development and assimilationist or ethnic policies in, in Xinjiang by the CCP over the years. Um, there's been a, a, a heightening of the assimilationist uh, part of that, an abandoning, an abandoning of pluralist approaches to diversity, um, at least cultural diversity or cultural autonomy in favor of outright assimilation. Uh, and of course, this has been justified in the name of counterterrorism uh, and also increasingly poverty uh, alleviation. Uh, so I won't, um, I won't read this out to you. Hopefully you have been able to skim it while I've been talking, but that's sort of the general points. And, and I will say, if anyone's interested, I can make available a PDF version of this, of my slides. Um, and, and, and I have actually a much longer version, which has links to a lot of um, studies and news accounts and stuff. So if you, I don't have time to kind of go into all the sourcing about what we're talking about today, but I can provide the PDF, which has all that information in it through, I guess, the Fairbank Center. All right. Um, so I'm, I, I, I'm not gonna linger on this next set of slides, but I did want to sort of simply point this out because this is, again, the, the, the issue about imprisonment through the legal system, such as it is, 
as opposed to the extra legal internments, which have gotten most of the attention. Um, and so this is all from Chinese sources, statistical yearbooks, judicial sources, and so on, uh, gathered and collated by various groups. And you can see that in 2017, suddenly, the number of people going through the legal system and being imprisoned in Xinjiang went from a baseline of like 27,000 or so in previous years, suddenly up to over 200,000. Um, and then with another additional, additional increase of 360,000 in the next year, um, and the 2019 figures are roughly comparable. Um, they haven't been tabulated into, the, into a graph, unfortunately, I don't have them here. So, so we're talking about this mass imprisonment um, as well as the, as the camps. Um, and of course, this is how we got to know about what was going on. We suddenly could see from websites, um, all of the allocation of funding, the tenders for bids um, to build out the security system. Echoing that same trend in a, in a really kind of terrifying way, you see, this is just from the um, Bureau of Hotan in the South. Um, you see this sudden uptick in building of Yoaryuan, right? So this is it's kindergarten, but it's for children from as young as, I guess, 18 months up through kind of lower school, suddenly see new facilities needed uh, to house children because their parents were taken away. There's been a lot of work, including by um, you know, Ryan Thumb, um, Harvard PhD himself, uh, about the destruction of architecture, in particular dome and minaret uh, uh, gateways on mosques and in many places, whole mosques. This has been going on for some years and, and we can find it again quite easily through before and after satellite photos. There's been a really full-scale attack on the Uyghur language, in particular, the script in which it's written. Uyghur publications, uh, there are no longer being books published in Uyghur. Um, the textbook system uh, in, in the what's called bilingual education, which is actually Han medium education with a Uyghur language and culture class, um, a new set of textbooks uh, were rolled out um, starting around 2010. And their old Uyghur texts that had been, you know, examples of old Uyghur writing were replaced with old Chinese writing, uh, that is old Chinese, you know, Wenyan materials translated into Uyghur. Um, that's just one example. Um, and then here in this banner poster outside of a school, uh, in Urumqi in, in 2018, um, you can probably figure out what it would be, right? It says Ninhao on the left, romanization and Chinese for hello. And then on the right, it also has Yakshimses, which is a romanization. And it would have been the Uyghur script above it, Yakshimses as well, but that's been uh, literally cut out of uh, the poster in 2018. And that's just emblematic of this kind of erasure across the board. You may have read about uh, you know, the anti-halal movement in, in, in Xinjiang, but also in, in, in Northwest China and other places where you could no longer write halal in Arabic script on restaurants. It's a similar anti-Arab script kind of movement. And then the forced labor uh, issue, um, which I'll actually be talking about a little bit more later. All right, so <clears throat> um, I think it's really, and I'm, I'm guilty of perhaps not using the word colonial that much before. I haven't ex entirely eschewed it, but I haven't made it front and center simply because it you know, raises, raises hackles so much. 
Um, but I think at this point, it really is worthwhile examining the colonial nature of, of Xinjiang, both within the Qing Empire uh, and within the republics, the Chinese republics in the 20th century. Um, and there's a perennial problem, which is still with us. Um, this is something I, I, I pointed out in my first book, Beyond the Pass, uh, that Xinjiang was managed through huge central government subsidies, or actually through, through, through huge subsidies coming from Eastern China. The way the Qing did it is they made individual rich provinces directly finance Xinjiang by sending silver overland um, themselves. They didn't take it from the Qing treasury. Uh, but um, this was uh, always, always necessary to subsidize the uh, maintenance of control uh, in the region. And from the beginning, uh, there was an effort to mitigate some of those costs by investing in, in settlements, uh, agricultural development um, for, for Han and Hui coming from Northwest China, uh, also for some Manchu or, or, or Solon and, and Shibo peoples in the North, Mongols were settled there. Um, on, on state farms and state pastoral organizations. Um, but this was combined in the Qing, as you know, the new Qing history, so history has, has talked about a lot, with a pluralist approach to, approach to administration, you know, uh, Mongol princes ruling Mongols, Uyghur begs uh, and Hakim begs in charge of Uyghur uh, regions, um, and so on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there were, in fact, uh, strong restrictions on Han settlement in southern, in southern Xinjiang. This is very much a part of, of policy, which was maintained through the 1830s. Uh, so that was you know, sort of the initial Qing approach uh, to this issue. Uh, and then Gong Zizhen, um, in, his, in a famous essay on making Xinjiang a, a province uh, in 1820, and this was kind of a policy, um, a policy paper that he wrote after a, a series of border incursions in the Kashgar area so in the early 1800s. And he said the solution to this was to make Xinjiang a province. So Xinxiang was the term. Um, now that was really a coded way of saying, um, put Xinjiang under the Han style, that is Junxian style administration, um, not under you know, Uyghurs and, Manchu, and Manchus and Mongols and so on, but make it a province like Sichuan, say. Um, and in doing so, investing in, um, in agriculture, moving Han out there to, to, to grow crops, to thereby raising the tax base. And of course, there was an assumption there that Han would be better at farming than the Xinjiang natives would be. Um, and of course, it is unbalanced and assimilationist strategy, which had this ethnic edge um, which also actually impinged upon or, or kind of challenged Manchu uh, governance in the, in the peripheries. Um, and so it was politically untenable in 1820. Um, but after the big rebellion, um, you know, um, the, the, the Hui rebellion in, in Gansu uh, area that spread out into Xinjiang, uh, Zhuo Zongtang, um, and then his, uh, the, the, actually the first new governor of Xinjiang, uh, Liu Jintang, uh, they came up, really suggested the same sorts of um, sorts of things. Um, first of all, famously, Zhou suggested that you know, Xinjiang should be reconquered and shouldn't be left. Um, it belonged part of the empire. And so that was the first big investment. Um, but then it would be followed up, he argued, by Han settlement, agricultural development, transport development. He planted rows of 
willow trees along the roads and set up water depots. Um, some of those willows, you know, or their or their continuation were still visible in the you know in the, in the 20th century. Uh, in order to integrate the region um, and again to make it to make it bloom, increase the tax base, and thereby make it secure. This was the the idea. Um, and then under Anzhou and Liu Jintang uh, in these first post-reconquest periods, uh, they implemented efforts to, at Confucian education in Confucian academies for a really very small number of, of Uyghur elites. Um, but Eric Schlussel has written about this um, recently as well. Um, and it wasn't terribly successful. Um, they, they gave the, um, these Uyghur students you know, Chinese names. All of us who studied Chinese uh, have um, had the experience of it being given a Chinese name. Uh, sometimes they can be quite ideological. Uh, one of the Chinese names given to a Uyghur boy in this system um, that I encountered in the archives was you know, Ai Du Shu, <laughs> loves to read books, was, was the name that they gave to him. His, his name was, uh, began with an Ai consonant. So in any case, you know, we see here what you know, Zhou Lin were trying to do here. Um, and ultimately, Xinjiang was made a Shang. There was this big administrative uh, remake of, of the region. Um, and not entirely, but a beginnings of a move away from Qing-style pluralist administration to a more Han-focused. Uh, and so the officials who came in, the governor in Urumqi and so on, they were thereafter Han. There was still a, a general uh, in the north, a Zhang Jun, who would be a Manchu for a while. All right, so that's sort of the deeper history. I'm gonna jump ahead though to the uh, PRC period uh, so that we can talk more about sort of the contemporary issues. Uh, so I would say that you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party does have a colonial problem uh, in, in Xinjiang um, or in the Uyghur region. Uh, and that problem begins with not admitting it's a colonial problem. I asked one of my younger colleagues who works a lot on uh, decolonial studies or, you know, post-colonial studies. And, you know, of course, there's a, there's a very vast literature, which I don't claim to have read very much of, and it gets quite theoretical sometimes. But I was asking, you know, what's the difference between um, studying colonialism and, and post-colonialism? And, and her response was, well, you first have to recognize that there was colonialism before you can get into the post-colonial kind of period. So I think that's what we're sort of facing here. Xinjiang remains uh, expensive to rule in that it continually absorbs subsidies from uh, the central government. And, and now, uh, as I'll mention in a moment, from uh, other provinces and rich cities of the East, just as in the Qing period. It has a non-Chinese native population um, that is persistently still non-Chinese. Although uh, I would argue that uh, there, Uh, that not, not losing one's identity as a Uyghur does not mean one cannot be a, an, a good PRC citizen, obviously, right? And there are, in fact, uh, you know, there, there was at least a flourishing Uyghur middle class. Uh, the idea that Uyghurs don't speak Chinese uh, across the board is completely untrue, um, and so on and so forth. So th there has been plenty of adoption to and, and uh, acceptance of life in, 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 in China by the, by the Uyghurs, but at the same time, they haven't given up cultural Islam or even you know, a religious uh, faith in Islam or, or many of the other characteristics of being 
with being Uyghur or Kazakh or Kyrgyz and so on. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but of course, it's, it's a, you know, one problem that has emerged uh, over the past decades has been that you know, ratcheting up of pressure, I'm calling it repression, um, ratcheting up of that uh, tends to produce more resistance or, or more, or at least more acts of resistance, which then reproduces more broad spread repression. And then and we get into this kind of a cycle. And I think if you simply look back over the past decades in Xinjiang, you know, it's really very easy to see that, see that cycle working. Uh, and then right, you know, right now we've seen, um, and, and, and you know, all along, but in particular recently, um, attempts to deal with these problems, I say with, by, by putting forward a false historical narrative. And saying, you know, Xinjiang has been part of China since the Han Dynasty. Um, now is, and, and the reason I say that that's an attempt to address the problem is because with recent international criticism of the policies in the Uyghur region, one of the first uh, official responses, I mean, the very first response was to deny that the camps existed. And then the next one was to argue that they were vocational training centers. Um, but, but right along that time, the PRC rolled out another white paper, um, which began with this narrative about the Han Dynasty. And we've seen um, uh, the, the mayor of, of Urumqi uh, has written or published a, an op-ed saying that Uyghurs um, are not Turks, they're not descended from the Turkic Haganate. Um, there have been uh, academics sucking up to authorities by writing papers, linguistic papers that purport to show that Uyghur is actually uh, derived from the Chinese language. It's not a Altaic language. So this, this attempt to write a narrative that writes this region in uh, and denies its Central Asian character and history, you know, it's reached really ridiculous extremes. Um, right now. And yet that's a knee-jerk response to this kind of criticism. Well, Xinjiang belongs to China, right? You know, stop stop um, repressing the minorities of Xinjiang. The response one gets very often is Xinjiang belongs to China, right? Um, and that just doesn't work because it doesn't address the basic fundamental uh, issues. All right, so the, the more material ways in which the PRC has attempted to address uh, the different nature, the colonial issues of, of Xinjiang has been through, uh, broadly speaking, two policy trajectories, one of which is development, the other is diversity management. Uh, and you know, the argument here is, is a reasonable one. Um, developing the region can, of course, um, make people happier to be part of the PRC. Uh, it can reduce dissent that way. It can also reduce the costs of management of the region. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a good thing to try to do. Uh, and then the other approach has been through diversity management. And this, of course, is, is one corner of ethnicity policies or the Minzu policies all across the PRC. Um, or, you know, the famous identification of, of 55 minority Minzu along with, along with the Han, uh, the uh, celebration at some periods of that difference you know, to use our contemporary vocabulary, we could see this as really a, a multicultural policy or kind of a, a, a form of diversity management, diversity regime um, that has been at some times, at some periods, in particular the 1950s, 1980s in China, <clears throat> really very liberal and open, um, at least on, on paper um, and in kind of public expressions of 
uh, inclusiveness of non-Han peoples, um, but 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 without challenging their 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 ethnic difference, right? And so, I mean, you can't get more inclusive than putting people on the currency, putting people on the stamps, putting people on the uh, spring festival television gala show, right? And it's, it's very easy as a Westerner to look at that and see its kitschiness, um, which, you know, it is. Um, and certainly in the 2008 Olympics, when minority people, when, when children, mainly Han children were dressed up as minorities and paraded around in that display of diversity, that, that got some sort of criticism, um, you know, from international bodies saying that, you know, it was cultural um, uh, co-optation and so on. Um, but by the same token, that is a kind of state celebration of diversity and very, very different from denial of diversity or attempts to assimilate it out of existence. Um, and we've seen both, you know, both extremes in China and now we're very much at a assimilationist uh, extreme. Now, um, kind of inherent in certain ways, and well, or you know, not separate from either development or diversity approaches, um, is the settler colonialism approach uh, to um, to development, but also as a form of trying to deal with with ethnic difference, right? Because um, you know, if you can if you can flood the zone with people from the metropole, uh, then that of course. Uh, arguably can, um, or from the from point of view of authorities, uh, can help secure the region, secure the frontier. Um, but of course, it also exacerbates the problem um, by creating a sense, precisely a sense that one is being uh, flooded. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll talk both about development and, um, and about the ethnic policies in a little bit more detail, but still in a very kind of broad outline way. Um, <clears throat> all right, so very, very broadly sketched from, you know, in the 1950s, uh, uh, the Uyghur region was really tied to uh, the USS, USSR. Um, and you know, at that point, actually, you know, Uyghur was was transliterated into Cyrillic script. That's just one symbolic example of this. Um, the USSR was was investing in uh, oil production in northern Xinjiang, and they got a cut of that. That all ended, of course, after the Sino-Soviet split. And for the next roughly twenty years, the region was pretty much left as a strategic buffer. There wasn't much um, development there. Of course, there are other things going on all over China. Um, which, which slowed down development. Uh, but again, one emblematic aspect of that, and this is something I experienced in, in 1990, is that for all that time, the railway going from Lanzhou in Gansu out to Urumqi, and this is the only rail line, um, it was single track, single line, so that you know the, the eastbound train had to pull over onto a siding to let the westbound train go by. Um, and it you know, took 24 hours or, or something like that to make that trip, if not, not more. More like 48, I guess. Yeah. So I've been that some of some of this audience might have as well. It's a steam train. And there was no train all the way to Kashgar until uh, until 1999. And again, that's uh, that's that's telling. Uh, incidentally, in, in 1899, the, the author Jules Verne wrote an adventure story about a trip all the way across Eurasia on a new train line. 
Uh, and this was science fiction when Jules Verne wrote it at the end of the 19th century. Um, and his train line went all the way from the Caspian Sea through Kashgar all the way to Beijing. So he imagined a hundred years before thinking about the you know, kind of cutting edge or, or new technology of the, of the uh, 19th century. He imagined this and it wasn't really for a century until that train was actually built there. Okay, so in 2000, um, you know, Xinjiang was a big part of the Shibu Dakaifa program, the great development of the West. Um, and some of the, you know, economists who've looked back on that, on that program um, have, have criticized it in regard to Xinjiang for, for focusing on resource extraction, on building of transportation, which has been you know, sort of very useful um, and has led to, you know, multiple other kind of multiplier effects, but generally for neglecting the poorer parts of Xinjiang, particularly the rural south. Um, so from Kashgar to Hotan and around in that, in that area in particular, where most of the Uyghurs uh, are concentrated. Uh, and for neglecting human capital investment in favor of brick and mortar and, and big projects. Uh, and one sign of this, emblematic example of this that was pointed out by the Uyghur economist um, Ilham Tokti, um, went in his writings about this before he was um, arrested for separatism and, and given a life sentence. Um, he, he was an economist at uh, Minzu Dashria. Um, but he pointed out that um, the lack of, of public education in the countryside in Xinjiang um, or for free public education, you know, meant that poor farmers were forced to decide between uh, educating children um, or just bringing them back onto the farm uh, to work. And so this really limited the ability of poor rural Uyghurs to, to learn Chinese at a level which would allow them to, to participate in the market and be entrepreneurs and so on. And also uh, restricted education of girls in particular. Um, I, I guess this is a problem in, in other parts of China as well. Um, I don't know about the education system generally, um, but this is very relevant in Xinjiang given the argument of the PRC state that voc so-called vocational training schools, um, you know, uh, coerced education is necessary given the fact that people are, are ignorant, right? They haven't provided free education up until very recently. And then since 2010, uh, there's been the, the, the counterpart assistance program to, um, uh, or the pairing or partner assistance program. Um, and this began to be uh, amplified after the Urumqi events of 2009 uh, and this is a very interesting, uh, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but a very interesting echo of the Qing period because rather than providing assistance uh, and directly from the central government in Beijing, this calls on, uh, on, on 19 rich provinces and municipalities of Eastern parts of the PRC uh, to create direct relationships with, with sister counties uh, and, and cities in, in Xinjiang uh, and to allocate a small percentage of the rich provinces annual revenue uh, to Xinjiang development and also send out consultants and, and, and plan group projects to round up companies to invest uh, and so on. Um, and so this has been um, 
program has been critiqued as well for uh, having many of the same kind of mistakes that, that sort of big development projects around the world have often had, being project-based, being top-down uh, for insufficient consultation with local people about what they really need. Um, and in particular, if you're asking Shenzhen to go help develop Kashgar, well, Shenzhen has been very, very good um, at developing Shenzhen, <laughs> right? Um, with a um, combination of, you know, an export-led model um, and, uh, um, and, and you know, uh, investment coming in from, from Hong Kong and, and elsewhere, um, building industrial parks, commercial free trade zones, and so on. And that's what Shenzhen has tried to do uh, in, in Kashgar. Um, but there have been you know, news stories recently about some of these new developments, these trade cities and so on, becoming ghost towns within a couple of years of their, uh, their construction in Kashgar, um, because the conditions are just not the same there. Um, and so that's been one of the problems of, of this. Um, Lee, Yu Hui Li has written a really good book um, about uh, this program uh, in Xinjiang, which, which gets into a lot of the data. Now, more recently, though, one of the results of this partnership program uh, is that it has connected the eastern provinces and cities and then the companies that they have brought in, often their own local you know, um, you know, Guangzhou companies or, um, or, or Beijing-based companies, they've brought them in. Um, they are now directly connected to local administrations and to securitization uh, and this whole carceral regime. Um, and many of the factories in which we first identified Uyghur forced labor were in fact factories built by Eastern provinces and cities in the new industrial zones in Xinjiang, which were constructed since 2010 under this assistance program. Uh, and factories run by, again, companies, Eastern companies that were corralled into this whole thing by their local authorities back, you know, back East. Um, and so this has really created a huge tangled mess uh, with regard to the tainting of supply chains. And again, I'll get to this in a, in a moment um, and the tainting of really anything to do with factory labor uh, in Xinjiang. Um, you start following these threads through, you'll see that, uh, that responsible parties behind some of these factories aren't only based in Xinjiang, but they're also based in, in Guangzhou and Shenzhen and Beijing and you know, the, uh, the whole 19 of them. So it's really a mess that has been created by embroiling these partners, the sister cities and sister provinces, uh, entangling them in the carceral regime in Xinjiang. Uh, let's see, let me make sure I don't talk too long. All right. Um, so related to this is the, is the issue of the Bingtuan or the, or the Xinjiang Production Construction Corps or as we probably should translate it, the Xinjiang Production Construction Soldier Corps. Um, there's another term that's used, the, the big AI database system in Xinjiang now, uh, it, the acronym is IJOP, uh, Integrated Joint Operations Platform. But that word operations is, um, in, in Chinese, it's so it's military operations platform. So we tend to, we, we drop the military and the soldier out of this. So I'm, I'm putting it back into this Xinjiang Production Construction Corps. In any case, this is a very interesting organization. It's like a state within a state, a kind of state owned enterprise on steroids within Xinjiang. It's, it's independent of the 
uh, of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Regional Government and answers only to the party. It was established in 1949 and 1950 as a way to deal with 80,000 Guomindang troops who were, who were stranded there when the Guomindang surrendered. And so they were settled there on the model of old Han Dynasty Twin Tian uh, and, and made you know, soldier militia farmers. Um, they were given wives brought out from Shanghai. Someone once told me that um, you know, Shanghai prostitutes who were arrested for rehabilitation were shipped out to Xinjiang to marry Guomindang, people which of course gave you a really good class background, unfortunately, um, then. I'm not sure how, I haven't seen that documented anywhere, but it does make a certain amount of sense. Uh, and so on the model of Twin Tian, these, you know, these, these militia were meant to, uh, to settle the region, to open up its, its agriculture. Um, and I'm quoting here from Bao Yajun, a man from the uh, organization department who was embedded with the Bing Tuan in 2010 for a year and wrote a big study about it. And there's um, a couple articles that have come out in English from this. It's a really revealing um, study with a lot of calls for reform. Uh, of the of the Bing Chuan, which would be in, important to look at, I think I think now, um, Xi Jinping, the the, the, the Bing Chuan has been sort of anomalous. There were there were Bing Chuan in other parts of China, also you know, peripheral areas, um, all of which have been dissolved. Uh, in the Cultural Revolution, uh, the Bing Chuan was particularly violent and a source of instability in in Xinjiang. Um, a lot of the members see themselves in a very strongly nationalistic way as defending the frontier as sort of the bulwark of China against, against barbarism. Um, and, and they get quite heated about this as they did in the Cultural Revolution. So the Bingtan was actually dissolved uh, after the Cultural Re Revolution and then reinstated in the, 19, in the 1980s, uh, I believe. Um, in his recent speech in, in, this, in September to, this, to the third Xinjiang work forum, Xi Jinping uh, in, uh, um, reiterated party support uh, for the Bing Tuan in a kind of interesting phrase, you know, to, to, to strengthen its organizational advantage and mobilization ability so that it may be better able to achieve its special function, a special function which he didn't define, but which everyone knows is basically um, protecting the frontier, right? One arm on the, on the pickaxe, one hand on the pickaxe, one hand on the gun has been their, has been their slogan. <clears throat> So the, the, this organization um, built its state farms um, very often on the best land. They got the river headwaters um, in the Tarim Basin. So they, they get first crack at runoff water coming out of the mountains, um, you know, leaving what's left for, for Uyghur farmers. Um, they've been more recently highly involved in, in city building, building new settlements. Um, they've gone into all sorts of industry, construction materials, and so on. They now apparently, the recent study, they have many, many subsidiaries and shell companies all over the world, um, which the, the kind of financial forensic folks are just beginning to sort of understand. But they still run at a huge loss. Um, and, and you know, many people think, wow, so much money has been invested in Xinjiang. You know, why are the Uyghurs and Kazakhs and others you know, not grateful? So much has been poured into it because really much of what has been poured into, into Xinjiang has been poured into the Bing Tuan um, and not, not diversified to, to local peoples. So um, something like 80 or 90% of their budget comes from the center. This is according to Bao Yajun study in the, in the, in the 2010s. Um, 
they have a huge overhead of pensioners because the people that they brought out and settled, they promised pensions, they promised education, they promised health care. Um, and so they're paying for uh, a population of 2.8 million with only 700,000 productive employees. This is a couple years old, but I don't think anything has really changed in the general uh, ratio there. So this is really ironically akin to the, Man the Manchu banner system, which became a really heavy burden on the, on the Qing empire when there were so many uh, bannermen dependents who had to be supported um, in order to maintain you know, military uh, viability for the banner. So it's a, it's a similar problem with any kind of colonial organization, right, of occupation. Um, now, one of the kind of interesting and most targeted and potentially most effective uh, directions of this recent sort of flurry of sanctions, which the US government has applied to China in regard to the Xinjiang situation, um, most interesting ones are, are directed at the Bingchuan. You know, this relatively little known organization um, has shown up on, in several of these, of these listings and these sanctions. The Public Security Bureau of the Bingtuan was on the first entities list um, listing. Um, Bingtuan officials have been sanctioned through the Global Magnitsky Law. Uh, the huge Eskel Group, um, which is a huge wholesale manufacturer, vertically integrated wholesale manufacturer of clothing, um, you know, they have, um, they, they grow cotton or buy cotton you know, from farmers directly in Xinjiang and then take it all the way up the chain to producing garments, which they then, uh, which are then internationally marketed under international fashion brands. Um, you know, all the biggest names, Tommy Hilfiger and, and so on and so forth. So um, they had a joint partnership with a subsidiary of the Xinjiang uh, uh, Production Construction Corps uh, until I believe uh, 2019. Uh, when they dissolved it. And they say they dissolved it because there was changes of their, um, in, in the way in which they were supplying cotton, I believe is their reason. Um, I've suggested maybe they saw the writing on the wall that it would not be useful to be, to continue to be in bed with the, um, with the Bing Tuan, but um, you can look on their website and actually see how they, they explain this. It's my speculation that that, that was their reason. Um, but that was, Eskel Group was also listed on this um, Bureau of Industry and Security entities list by the U.S. Now, that's very interesting because, you know, this entities list is its export control entities. And the entities there are those that are subject to special review when they want to, um, when, when someone wants to export particular technology to those entities. So I don't believe there's anything that Eskel you know, technologically needs that might be exported from the United States. Someone suggested perhaps robotics, maybe so, but they're in the business of, of, of spinning cotton, making textiles, making apparel. Um, so the U.S. is using the entities list, I think, to, to name and shame, shame here. And it's interesting that they singled out Eskel for this. Just last week, this, there's a, a much broader ban has been put in place. Um, the CBP uh, issued a withhold a, a detention order or, or withhold release order um, and the Customs and Border Patrol will detain all cotton and cotton products including textiles uh, originating with the Bingtuan in Xinjiang. It used to be just concerns about Xinjiang. Now they're, they're singling out 
um, the Bing Chuan as well. How exactly one is going to determine that given the fact that you know, goes into you know, everything and is spread out through supply chains, that's an interesting question. Um, Xinjiang produces 85% of China's cotton now. Um, and this has been the, the culmination of a movement of cotton growing and also cotton spinning from Eastern China into Xinjiang over the last 20 years. It's been progressively increasing, you know, doubling down on Xinjiang as the, as the, the cotton bowl of, of China has been clearly a, a policy. Um, and perhaps also um, cotton or lower level um, processing of cotton and production of, of cotton products and textiles in general, one could also argue has been moving out to Xinjiang as well, perhaps as part of this process of chasing remaining cheap labor sort of deeper and deeper into the PRC uh, hinterland you know, as, as, as the, the stock of peasant girls willing to work for very little in factories in, in the East you know, is, is depleted. So uh, there seems to have been a policy to kind of move all of this uh, further and further out into Xinjiang. Um, so, so 85% of China's cotton comes from Xinjiang. We don't know how much of that, or, or I haven't found the figures. Perhaps they could be found by tabulating and comparing different statistical yearbooks. But um, we don't know exactly how much of that is grown by the Bingtuan, but the Bingtuan itself claims to grow a lot of it. Um, it certainly probably both buys up supply grown from communes or from uh, independent growers. Um, and processes that. It also grows its own on these huge state farms, uh, that, um, mechanized cotton harvesting in Xinjiang using the most advanced harvesters, which now can, can harvest cotton uh, in a way that maintains high quality. It used to be until quite recently that hand-picked cotton was of better quality because automated harvesting would, would break up the fibers. Now they've got the most advanced harvesting and they, you know, they advertise it as one of their great um, comparative advantages here. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, uh, the XPCC, um, right, so it, it's, it's claiming it's reaching new heights in the harvest of cotton. I think this is from 2019, perhaps 2018, um, 2019, yeah. Uh, so some large amount of Xinjiang's cotton comes from um, the Bingtuan. Um, and uh, and that, of course, is a large amount of China's own 85% of cotton. China also imports cotton from outside to use in clothing. So I don't know how exactly all of this is going to be you know, sorted out, um, but, but what, these, what, the, what the regime in Xinjiang has now done has really implicated um, the Bingtuan and with it all of Xinjiang and with it potentially all of these partners in this whole regime with the camps and forced labor and birth suppression uh, and everything else. And the Bingtuan is still recruiting people from, from Eastern China, uh, advertising education, housing, guaranteed high salary jobs uh, for people with native registration and, um, and good political character. All right, um, so it's almost 1.20. I want to leave time for... Uh, well, uh, Jim, one of the first questions I would like to ask is, why do you think in 2017, there was this kind of added new push? What were the circumstances that led to that, that push at that time? 
So I think, um, <clears throat> so two things. What obviously, you know, I haven't, I haven't talked about terrorism, uh, terrorism yet. Uh, in 2013 and 14, there were four events which are clearly jihadi style uh, attacks on civilians to make a political point. Um, we don't know a great deal about it. And that includes the Kunming attacks, um, two attacks in Urumqi, um, and then this Beijing vehicular assault. Um, there's some weird things about some of them. Um, we'd like to know more than we do, but you know, simply from seeing what happened, um, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable calling those terrorism. Um, but contrary to very widespread belief and widespread belief in, in the think tank world and you know, outside of China as well, um, much of what else has been going on, I would categorize as unrest rather than as terrorism. A lot of it involves the police. A lot of it comes out of police action, going into people's houses, looking for Korans or taking veils off of women or chasing down groups of people who are praying in the desert. Um, a lot of it seems to be um, you know, mass incidents, not that different from the kind of mass incidents that we are told there's tens of thousands of in the rest of China every year, right? Um, villagers upset at a local policy, land appropriation, um, appropriation of pension funds, environmental damage. Um, so they converge on the local uh, uh, government office uh, or family planning issues. Um, and then things get very, very violent. And the difference between how these issues are treated in Eastern China and how they're treated in Xinjiang is that in Xinjiang, everything is terrorism and the police shoot first as they did in the Urumqi um, uh, in, in, in 2010, excuse me, 2009 in, in, in Urumqi, the demonstrations there, uh, they were violently repressed in a way which not even Tiananmen or you know, certainly Hong Kong recently have been violently um, repressed immediately, that is on the very day of the first demonstration, right? But that's what happens in Xinjiang because of this terrorism label. Um, so in you know, um, 2013, 2014, there were these events um, the entire issue of, 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 of Uyghur nationalism had been characterized since the early 2000s as one of terrorism, separatism, and, and extremism. And that branding and approach uh, still applied because it, uh, it, unrest of all kinds was continuing. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, transferred um, Chen Chenguo from Tibet, where he was known for having uh, stabilized the situation through various kinds of policies, including grid policing and other things like that. And so he was transferred over in 2016 and right away began implementing the policies that we've seen. So I would say, you know, the, the proximate reasons is the, the, the continuing unrest in, in Xinjiang in the years before 2016, 2017. Uh, but the longer term reasons are, are, are the, that unrest uh, was itself the result of increasingly uh, oppressive approaches to, to Uyghur culture, really, which, which were, were, were triggered in turn by the events of 2009, um, you know, the Urimchi riots and so on. So it's sort of this escalation, again, this repression, resistance, repression kind of cycle. And Xi Jinping, after coming into office, decided to do something about it. <clears throat> now, I mean, there's an interesting angle on this, which I haven't really looked into. And I don't know, I mean, Ezra, maybe if you wanna write another 
big biography of a Chinese. <laughs> Um, one interesting thing about Xi Jinping, you know, his father, um, Xi Jinping, Jin, yes. Jin, right, yes. was, was closely involved with the, um, the United Front and is known as someone who worked closely with the um, Tibetan um, um, people in particular and is sympathetic to um, kind of indigenous Tibetan elites um, and others and was someone who's well liked by Minsu. Now, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm speculating here with absolutely no evidence um, other than this. But, you know, if one wanted to go all kind of psychobiographical about this and to think about Xi Jinping's approach to ethnicity um, versus that of his father, um, you know, maybe there's something there because because uh, I think one of the most notable things that Xi Jinping has done um, has been to go, has been to push the idea of the Zhonghua Minzu of a kind of super Minzu that, that all of its characteristics are those of Han Chinese, but that everyone really should, should follow, follow in on. So in addition to the, to the Xinjiang policies, there's the you know, so-called anti-Arabization uh, or the sinicization of, of religion policies, which again are literally going around knocking down domes and replacing them with Chinese style roofs on, on mosques. Um, there's been a big push uh, to people to speak only Chinese in schools, including most recently in Inner Mongolia. You know, why are they pursuing that particularly right now, given all of the international criticism that the PRC is getting for Xinjiang policies? It would seem to be just kind of asking for more, for more trouble, and yet he does seem to be pursuing it. So I, um, he has been... Um, there was this discussion really from the 2010s and something which Mark Elliott has written about um, in this wonderful article on the, the search for the, the missing indigy in China. Um, you know, the so-called second generation Minzu policy. Um, and in that discussion, there were sort of two sides. One was that the, the, the current Minzu policies were good. They needed actually to be, uh, to be fulfilled to the letter of the constitution and various laws. And then there was a counter argument that no, no, that approach, the, the celebration of the different Minzu was in fact bolstering national, uh, national divisions and that China might break, break up like the Soviet Union had over those national divisions. And that debate went back and forth surprisingly openly in, in party journals in anthropological literature and so on. Xi Jinping very early on in his tenure weighed in at an ethnic worth conference and, and James Labold has written about this, um, and didn't really come down directly in favor of the so-called second generation or, or deterritorializationing. In other words, taking away the so-called autonomous regions of Xinjiang, Tibet, and so on. Um, uh, but the policies that he's implemented very much trend in that in that in that direction, and he's and he has been very much pushing um, emphasis on. Um, a national study on the national language. In Xinjiang now, the word for, for, for Chinese that, that is officially used is not Putonghua so much. It's not Hanhua, which many people used to use colloquially. It's, um, it's Guoyu, right? The old term we, we used to know from, from, from um, Taiwan and, uh, and in Singapore and so on, but they're using national language and national studies. And, and the nation, that, that sense of Guo is increasingly being defined by Xi Jinping along the, to, 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 to fit a Han mold, right? Chinese mold. Um, let me, I, I, um, we should open up to the sort of general 
questions. Um, I, I don't want to get into the, people might have been seeing what I put up here, this thing about ETIM. Um, there really was a big um, you know, mistake made by the um, Bush administration in agreeing to list this organization. Um, Sean Roberts at George Washington University has a new book called The War on the Uyghurs. And he goes into all of the history of this. He's talked to Uyghur groups. He's talked to the supposed terrorist groups and to some who really are violent people. Um, and he un, un, untangles this very, very clearly. But the long and the short of it is uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, so-called ETIM was officially delisted. And this was announced by Secretary Pompeo. And this is really a phenomenal admission on the part of, um, of the US um, that this was a, a mistake in the first place. Um, but what's kind of, what's tragic about it is that this was a mistake and particularly the use of, of Chinese language from, from the Chinese white paper. Um, this US mistake created the sense that there was a unitary international organized terrorist organization responsible for everything that happened in Xinjiang. And, and literally the US statement said that. Um, and so that has spawned a thousand think tank studies ever since, which you know, can look back to the US uh, putting its imprimatur on PRC propaganda to say that there is such an organization um, when there really wasn't, there was not that kind of thing. So, so we're coming out of global war on terror as a framework in which we've seen this. Um, and, 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 you know, well, well overdue that, that, this is, that this has happened. Um, so maybe, um, I think I've, 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 I've talked enough, there's more that I could say, but um, let me just leave this, I'll, I'll leave this screen up for a minute if you wanna go to questions. Yeah, uh, one person who wants to ask a question is Paul here, uh, who has been a, a national intelligence officer uh, for many years working on China and uh, also worked for the Council of Foreign Relations. I wonder, Mark, if you could uh, call on Paul here uh, to let him ask the question himself. Paul, is that possible? If not, then I'll just read his question. Yeah, I'm trying to promote him now. Okay. Paul, does that work? Yeah, here he comes, Paul. And he may be muted. Okay, there we go. Okay, no, I didn't realize there was gonna be the option here. Oh, the question was a very succinct one. And I think uh, Dr. Milberg, you addressed it in part. Uh, my question was, was basically, uh, would it be correct to characterize Beijing's policy in Xinjiang as clearly an outrageously excessive overreaction to what is nonetheless a legitimate, however marginal, but real terrorist threat? Um, I think it's far, far more marginal than even, <laughs> even you know, reasonable people say. Um, I mean, literally, we can point to those, those four, uh, four events in 2013 and 2014. Um, before that, it was in the early 1990s, there were a couple of bus bombings um, but really this, um, it, it's been the dog that hasn't barked. Um, and, 
and again, this is a little unfair to point this out, but I think it's worthwhile that, you know, um, the, the Quinming, um, the Quinming railway station, you know, was obviously a horrific event. 31 people were killed by eight or nine assailants. Um, exactly why they were there though, it, it seems that they were trying to get out of China and were, were blocked um, at the border. This was in the middle of a movement when a lot of people were being smuggled um, out of China through Southeast Asia. Um, so there's, again, there's weird things about it. Nonetheless, a horrible event, but um, you know, at almost around exactly that same time, a Han man on a bus in Fujian um, lit a can of kerosene on fire over an overpass and killed himself and 46 other people. Um, and so, you know, that's not treated as terrorism. None of these other mass incidents in the rest of China are treated as terrorism. And I think an awful lot of the unrest could be put down to, uh, the, you know, the same kinds of problems that we see in other parts of China with, with, with local corruption and so on, as I said before. Um, and, and I actually, I mean, and Sheila Greetens and, and co-authors have written a, you know, an influential article recently um, where they say, you know, they, they advocate um, sort of how we should talk about, you know, the terrorism issue um, with, with, with China. And um, there's a lot that's really good in that article and I've assigned it myself, but, but I, don't, I think we're well beyond usefulness of terrorism as a framework for discussing it. Um, the, the, the degree of the problem is very small and they have a much larger other problem. Obviously, I'm not going to have a lot of fans in, in, in Beijing right away by calling it a colonial problem. Um, with more time, and I'm actually thinking of writing something along these lines, I would want to compare it to other colonial issues, to other issues of racism um, you know, in the United States and with the United States, US um, you know, expansion, European expansion across, across North America. Um, provides many very, very parallel situations. Um, Canadian and US um, you know, boarding schools and religious endeavors to uh, uh, you know, uh, convert native peoples or first nations um, to white ways. I mean, there are many, many very, very striking parallels. When we talk about the camps in Xinjiang and, and concentration camps um, you know, um, and, and people bridle at that word concentration camp, I think it's, it's appropriate. Um, the reference point shouldn't be the Holocaust so much as the first uses of concentration um, in, in Cuba um, and in, um, in South Africa um, and in, frankly, in the US with Japanese Americans, um, you know, putting a group in a state of exception in Agamben's terms uh, on the basis of their ethnic identity because they are seen on the basis of that ethnic or religious identity as a threat to society, therefore not, uh, should not be treated with the same rights. That's precisely what's going on. And, you know, the wheel has been reinvented in Xinjiang in recent terms. So that's why I use this kind of terminology. And I think you know, the, the terrorism frame has been very, very destructive um, for everything. And I think, frankly, um, it, it's, it's very useful for China to hear from other voices that it's not terrorism they're dealing with, it's another kind of problem. So that's why I, I object quite strongly to, you know, well, maybe it's a little problem, no. And, and you know, they have so firmly overreacted um, to, to have illegalized aspects of, you know, mundane aspects of religious practice. Owning a Quran is effectively illegal, can get you put in the camps in Xinjiang. That's how far they've gone by following this terrorism frame. And it's time for 
I think for their own good and for the good of you know, Xinjiang's exports and everything else, for all of our good, to kind of recognize that that's not the source of this problem. Here's a question from Xavier Wisniewski. So I was wondering if you could address the Uyghur crisis, how it plays in the international relations with China. Uh, and the fact that some multinational corporations seem to be hindering the efforts to address the problem. Uh, Nike and the US apparently lobbying against bills to address this situation seems morally dubious. Um, so who are the people uh, who are working on this issue? Uh, what do you think the next Biden administration might be able to do that would be helpful? I mean, I, I, that's my added on to the end. Right, right. It's all part of that bigger question. So, <clears throat> um, to get to the, start with the specifics and then I'll broaden it out. Um, the specifics are, you know, Nike, Apple, Coca-Cola, um, it's recently been reported and there might well be other companies, um, have been uh, lobbying against uh, a law that is moving through Congress now, um, a Uyghur forced labor law. There, there has been a law that, that did pass called the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act. Um, that law initially had forced labor provisions in it. Um, it. It stalled in Congress, although it had strong bipartisan support in the middle of the Trump administration as very little else did. It stalled in Congress, I think, because it was opposed by Secretary, I've been told, by Secretary Mnuchin um, and and also from the White House, who believed that it could overturn efforts, it could, it could hinder efforts to reach this massive trade deal with, with China, uh, which is ironic because, of course, the billions in tariffs, hundreds of billions in tariffs, which the Trump administration put on, were a much serious, more serious kind of economic problem. In any case, um, that human rights bill was held up. It eventually passed when they stripped out the labor provisions. So now a new bill with those labor provisions is, is working its way through. That's what the corporations are worried about um, because it is very similar to what I just mentioned, the, um, uh, the, the listing of the, of the Bing Chuan and the withhold release order. Um, this could make a rebuttable presumption. Uh, in other words, it could put the onus on corporations wanting to import goods from China or Xinjiang, Xinjiang or, or perhaps China more broadly, um, to prove that they have nothing to do with the Bing Tuan or nothing to do with, with forced labor, um, as opposed to the onus being on anyone accusing them of being connected to forced labor. And obviously switching that burden of proof over to the importer is something that the companies are very concerned about. But they're, they're essentially, I, I, I somewhat sympathize with them um, because for the reasons I just pointed out and the reasons I went into this, this level of detail about the partnership assistance program, um, when you start looking, if you start pulling on some of these threads, uh, you see how involved so many, you know, hundreds, thousands of corporations, hundreds of local administrations, all of Xinjiang, the Bing Tuan, and then now all of their Eastern um, um, partners in the partnership program are all involved in this. Everybody has been tainted by this. And so, and, and now increasingly international corporations are now having to worry about it. So I do sympathize for, with, with them um, as I sympathize in particular with the Eskel group that I mentioned before. They were in Xinjiang 20 years ago. They were setting up uh, factories, hiring Uyghur workers before any of this happened. And they've been embroiled in it too. So um, 
it's it's just a a big mess um, that has been created by these policies, and the, and the international corporations are upset by it too. Um, I think it's important for the next administration, <clears throat> even as it it should adjust its general China policies to avoid uh, gratuitous provocations of China and to become much more strategic in the types of actions that it takes. I, I don't think the Trump over the Trump uh, China policy overall has been chaotic um, and very, very mixed. But I think these targeted approaches, Magnitsky sanctions, um, these kinds of entities listings, particularly when they've been able to frankly scare the monkey to kill the chickens or scare the chicken to kill the monkeys, I can never remember which, um, it's causing reverberations through the entire uh, global uh, uh, apparel industry. Um, and, it's, it's, and it's being picked up and, and you know, young people in making their fashion consuming choices are aware of this. Um, this, is applying, this is a way to apply real pressure, which is much, much better than Secretary Pompeo wagging his finger. Um, and, um, and, and, I, and, you know, and, and, and I think points out the, the, the fundamental problems and should encourage China to try to, to resolve them. Whereas if, if, if these issues are dealt with purely politically without paying attention to the global commercial aspects of them, uh, then, it, then the, the Xinjiang and, and the issue of Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz um, and other native peoples in Xinjiang, that simply becomes another thing that the US and China yell at each other about. Um, and, and the whataboutism comes into this and so on and so forth. So, um, so I support, uh, I hope the Biden administration will continue this kind of, of careful, targeted, well-researched um, sanctioning of um, corporate and, and, and political entities that are um, involved with this, even though they're going to get pushback from, from global corporations that uh, find this very inconvenient. Uh, I wonder if you want to add a little more, if, you, if the Biden administration were wise enough to come to you and say what we should do about the Xinjiang problem. Uh, in addition to that targeted uh, program for dealing with businesses, uh, do you have an overall, you know, perspective, or how would you deal with some of the Uyghur dissidents that come to the United States, and how would you uh, approach China on these issues? So Uyghur, um, I don't know how many Uyghur dissidents have ever come to the United States. Some become dissidents when they're, when they're here. Um, I suppose some have, but mainly what we have right now is I, not a large number, um, but we have we have exiles or refugees who have not been able to go back since all of this, you know, since the, since their family members started being uh, interned and incarcerated. So I think of an easy step um, and, and a good step to make and one that is beneficial for the United States in many ways would be to simply would you, to speed up the asylum process or to give um, a kind of uh, amnesty to Uyghurs who are left high and dry in the United States because of all of this. Um, again, I don't know the absolute numbers. It can't be more than a few hundred, but the analogy to this is what the US did after the Tiananmen um, events uh, for, for Chinese students, some of whom, as I recall, were you know, given a kind of um, amnesty from, from immigration concerns. So I think that would be you know, a, good, a good first step. Um, many, many Uyghurs have been trying to work their way through 
the immigration um, uh, system. Um, many have not wanted to claim asylum, but they've had no choice. Um, and they've been stymied simply because the Trump administration has understaffed and has just you know, thrown a spanner in the works for all of that. So there have been people who've been waiting for years for an initial interview that the, the websites, the US Immigration Service websites say you will get within two weeks. There's still people who haven't gotten that. So anyway, that, that's an easy one, I think, which could be done. It, wouldn't, it won't please Beijing, but um, you know, that's, I think these are, these are mainly professionals, speak many languages, it's a good thing. More broadly though, <clears throat> um, I think you know, continuing um, these sort of targeted policies, but you know, I, the US really needs to, uh, for its foreign policy in general, um, you know, try to recover, um, or uh, recover may not even be the right word, but um, you know, try to establish a, uh, well, to treat these issues with some humility, given our own um, problems with regard to, uh, to racism at home, with regard to xenophobic um, policies, um, you know, the, the, the sort of make America first approach of the Trump administration has really eroded a lot of US credibility internationally over, over these issues. And so to suddenly come right back um, and, and start lecturing, you know, other, other countries um, about their diversity issues is, is probably not the most practical way to do it. Um, unfortunately, you know, how do you, how do you do this? It's an urgent situation with, with, with people literally in camps and being in forced labor situation. Um, I, I think um, some humility and recognition um, and maybe even you know, beginning to discuss um, why the West is so appalled by uh, what's going on in Xinjiang. Um, not just by analogy, as I said before, to, you know, to the Holocaust, which I think is not really the good analogy, but analogy to treatment of indigenous peoples uh, in our own history. Um, and kind of you know, gently pointing out these parallels and to show that this is seen as a great failure in, in our nations, in our societies. It's a, it's a failure globally. Um, the legacies of colonialism as, as the Black Lives Matter movement has, has shown um, uh, really resonate and, and, and are of great concern, you know, particularly to young people all over the world. Um, that was actually very moving to me to see the kind of the global echoes of the Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations in the United States following the death of George Floyd to see them in, in, in France and UK and, and Australia and, and you know, even I think Japan and so on. Um, so this is a global issue, right? And, and so China now has been um, perpetrating some of these same kinds of, of, um, of sins of colonialism. Our, our hands are not clean, but we do have experience in this and, and experience of regret of this. Um, and and you know, celebration of diversity is something which the uh, the first generation Minzu policies, you know, in the 1950s, with its internationalist kind of Marxist but 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 internationalist approach to to the idea of the nation, um, the PRC came up with a really interesting, not the same as you know, liberal democracies did, but an interesting approach to diversity regime, um, one which we you know I think many other countries could learn from. Um, and so recognizing that in 1950s, it was, you were better off as a minority in China than you would have been in the United States. You know, it might be a kind of place to start this conversation. 
So maybe this isn't something necessarily which you know, diplomats can do around the table in their, in their first meetings, but I think it could be part of a broader society to society conversation. Um, and that, that you know, might help kind of explain where we're coming from on this and, and why it's such a bad idea to, to pursue those policies in Xinjiang. I have to apologize for so many people who've asked questions. I've been slow in scrolling down, but one question from Ambassador Stapleton Roy. Can you say a few words about separatism in Xinjiang? And then and the final question. Unfortunately, Mark Elliott had to run to a meeting, but this is the question from Mark Elliott. So if you could address these two questions as the final comments. And here's what Mark said. We can readily see the move toward policies in Xinjiang that are more aggressively assimilationist. And as you say, the shift has been couched mainly in terms of counterterrorism or poverty uh, uh, amelioration. Have you seen any evidence of a broader shift in nationalities policy in China uh, as Minzu uh, Tuanjie? Uh, is it now being reinterpreted to Minzu Ronghe? or assimilation, or some similar redefinition of the Zhonghua Minzu. Are right. we seeing a question, uh, questioning with the model of Doyen Yi established by Fei Xiaotong uh, that has been in place for 40 years? So those two questions for your final comments. Yeah, okay. So on the issue of separatism, um, you know, just the other day I was reading an otherwise you know, good news, news account um, and in that, you know, kind of basic explanatory paragraph that so many articles, you know, have to have, um, you know, it said something like, um, um, you know, uh, separatists have been have been waging a long-term um, campaign uh, to achieve autonomy in Xinjiang or to achieve independence for Xinjiang. You know, so statements like that are quite commonplace. Um, but if you actually Think about it, we have absolutely no evidence of that. We have no evidence of why any of this unrest happens, right? We, we are not, um, we, we are told endlessly by PRC propaganda that it's due to the three evils of separatism, extremism, uh, and terrorism. They're blending together religious motivations with nationalistic motivations um, as if they're, you know, they're, they're inseparable. And I think there's an argument to be made for nationalistic desires in addition to, or maybe even more than religious motivations. But I actually only realized this myself the other day. We have very little evidence of even separatist impulses. We really don't. You know, there aren't, there aren't writings. There are people outside of China who, who want to have an independent East Turkestan organization um, or, or East Turkestan Republic. But all the main exile Uyghur political groups uh, the World Uyghur Congress and the Uyghur America Association, the most influential ones, uh, uh, renounced their open calls for independence or, or, or dropped them um, some time ago uh, in return for being able to function as, a ma as mainstream advocacy organizations, um, working with the EU, working with US government in Australia and other places like this. Um, and and, and they, you know, their, their concerns now are for protection of the people, for cultural autonomy, for cultural preservation, those kind of things, as with Tibet as well. So there really is nobody who is, except for very small numbers of, of, of Uyghurs outside of China, who is, who is calling for an independent East Turkestan. And we have no evidence that there is any, and as I said before, there is no, there is no group that is pursuing this. 
There is no organized international group of any size. There's definitely nothing that is organized within Xinjiang that's, that's doing this. So um, I think, you know, obviously there are, um, I think, you know, people are angry, people are concerned, people are, are terrified about what the Chinese state might do. There's, there's, there's great interests in preserving uh, Uyghur culture. And I think now after what's going on, I think many people say the only way in which Uyghurs can be saved safe is if they're free of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised that those sentiments have, have spread over the last few years. Um, but I think before we talk about, you know, we, it's one of these things we've taken as a, as taken for granted without actually looking at it, that there is a separatist movement behind this. So as for Mark Elliott's question, um, you know, has there been signs of a, of a shift towards, um, you know, away from unity of the nationalities to mingling or even fusing of the nationalities? And, and Mark obviously knows the answer to this question. I can tell from the way he, he asked it, um, that there has been, the rhetoric has, has shifted. Um, and he's more expert on this than me, having, having done this work, studied this. But, um, the, the rhetoric has, has, has shifted in significant ways. Um, and we've seen this in Xi Jinping's speeches at various ethnic work forums and so on. One thing that really struck me um, from the most recent, and this hasn't really been picked up that much in the press, but the most recent Xinjiang, uh, it was a Xinjiang work forum held in September. I, I referenced it in my talk. Um, uh, she repeated a phrase which has been in some earlier you know, political announcements as well, that saying that um, the, the, um, the bloodlines of all the nationalities in Xinjiang are linked to those of the Zhonghua Minzu. So he used this with Xuemai, right? So, um, and this is as far as I can tell, I, I, I searched that phrase and I found it coming up here and there over the past couple of years, but not before that. Um, um, but this seems to be hinting even at this at this racialist argument of unity, right? It's not it's not the facial tone kind of anthropological argument that the various peoples have come together and through their combined efforts and, and labor um, and aspirations, you know, will give birth to the Zhonghua Minzu as a kind of super super identity. That's what kind of facial tones, Dorian Iti, many origins, one. Uh, one essence, one substance, one body. That's his argument. Um, this is different from that. This is more akin to what Chiang Kai-shek argued um, in China's destiny, that all the peoples of China and his peoples were divided into five, the Manchus, the Mongols, the Muslims, uh, the Han and the Tibetans. But he said, all of them came from the same stock. All were signs of the yellow emperor. They just deviated from the core, from the root stock because of historical and geographical regions, but they really were all the same people. So he was thinking in these racial terms. So, so Xi Jinping introducing this term bloodline, so maybe that's just kind of a way of putting it, but it does seem to um, add this kind of racialist sense to it. And certainly arguments that Uyghur language is actually Chinese, the Uyghurs are not descended from, from the Turkic Haganate, but rather from you know, ancient Zhonghua Minzu, the increasing treatment of Zhonghua Minzu as a historical entity rather than as an ideological artifact, which we see across the board in these statements, um, is likewise pushing towards this kind of racialized notion of a uh, inherent Chinese group. And of course, whenever you see what 
you know, what are the characteristics of this Zhonghua Minzu? Um, they celebrate Chinese New Year. They speak Han, they speak Northern Mandarin. Um, uh, and they are very loyal to the Chinese Communist Party, right? So that's part of this statist cult. And then this might be, you know, we were talking before about the biography of Xi Jinping. I think this ties it together. This ties the, the China dream together. Um, his kind of Confucianistic approach, the efforts to create a state-focused ideology and how minorities or so-called Xiaoshu Minzu in China uh, seems to challenge that, um, that homogeneous vision of a loyal Chinese identity, Zhonghua identity. Jim, we're very grateful for you taking the time and uh, sharing your extremely deep, uh, broad knowledge and thought and uh, sympathy and understanding of uh, what's going on in a very broad way. And we're very pleased that finally uh, you have been willing to help us <laughs> in uh, the issues related to Uyghurs. So thank you very, very much for your- Well, it's been my, my pleasure. And thanks to everybody who, who joined in. I wish I could have seen your, your faces at least, but um, thanks for sticking with me while I sort of rambled on, on so long. You didn't ramble, you informed us. Thanks a lot, Jim. Bye-bye. Thank you.